Hey, good morning. Great to see Mark behind the tom-toms again, isn't it? Yeah. And thank you, Jeremy, if you're here. There he is for filling in. And uh, yeah, healing is a good thing, isn't it, Mark? Yeah. Um, hey, just to clarify here, uh, you know, what Mike said about Breeze is, is really pretty important. We need to know, you know, like people change their emails all the time, so please update that. And if your picture's not there, it really helps to know what face matches what name. So he's gonna, they're going to be taking pictures, for those of you who don't, don't have that in Breeze, out right after the service, right here by the welcome desk. Uh, hey, if I appear to be a step behind, a uh, step slow today, we, uh, we had kind of a late night. Uh, Christy and I got our youngest married off yesterday to lovely bride. Uh, and those kids like to celebrate. It went on and on and on. Wore me out just watching them. So, yeah, thank you for your prayers, and, uh, and uh, we'll, we just look forward to uh, that new relationship in a wild and crazy family. Um, we're in a series, as you might see, uh, What is a Man? And uh, uh, early in my life as a believer, I had a guy who was discipling me, an older man, and he told me, to look at the qualities of an elder, not just for those who are recognized for leadership. Uh, instead, he said we should look at those qualities as traits that all men should pursue if they're serious about being a faithful follower, disciple, and an ambassador of Christ. And Around the same time, I think probably in about the 80s, I became aware of a book uh, authored by a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary named Gene Getz called The Measure of a Man. Some of you may remember that. And so I found that on my dusty bookshelf and, and uh, pulled it out because I thought it might have something to say about our topic. And uh, Professor Getz had the same perspective as my mentor and he helps us understand what makes a true man after God's heart, or as the title, Cor Dea in Homini, says, the core, the heart of God in man. Today, so we're going to start on what may seem like a laundry list of qualities, which will wrap up this series. Uh, it may take a month, another month or two, but uh, this will be it. And at the foundation, the core or heart of this matter of being a biblical man are the qualities that God has laid out in his word that all leaders are supposed to have, at least imperfectly. Uh, and not all people who have these qualities are selected to lead, but all men have those qualities within their grasp. They are all attainable if we're serious about stepping up and pursuing them. It may take a while, like our whole lives, to, uh, with some stumbling and getting knocked down and getting back up, but nothing is holding us back. We're never going to be perfect, 
but we can achieve some, some level here. And ladies, these are the qualities that you should be encouraging in your husband and in your sons and single gals. These are the qualities for which you want to look for in a man with whom you choose to become one for life. Last week in Mike's message about beginning at the end, if you remember, he said that uh, we end our lives on earth uh, the way we end our lives on earth will be reflected by certain qualities. Uh, and in the qualities we will survey today in 1 Timothy and Titus, Paul gives the specific characteristics of a man of God developed through spiritual growth over time. The goal is to reflect Jesus Christ in our whole lives, our lifestyle. This involves putting off the old man, our attitudes, behaviors, and patterns, of our former self and putting on the new man, the attitudes, behaviors, and patterns that imitate Christ. So, and if you read these passages, you'll note that Paul, that Paul is not talking about talents, abilities, skills, or even spiritual gifts. Now, skills and talents are great, but a skillful person without the qualities that we're going to talk about uh, may use that skill for bad or evil. A person who knows how to handle money and uh, accounting and books like that can cook the books or to cover his or her theft. We call that white-collar crime. A great orator may use that skill to deceive others. We sometimes call that politics. Uh, spiritual gifts are certainly important, but to focus on them first is to put the cart before the, ho before the horse. Uh, it is these basic qualities that Paul lays out that must be learned and applied before our use of spiritual gifts can be effective. Paul says in both letters that it is good for any man to desire to become a leader on some level or levels. These qualities appear to be goals for every man who calls himself a follower of Christ. In fact, most of these qualities are laid out elsewhere in Scripture for every Christian woman as well. The list is long, so where do you start? This may remind you of the proverbial question, how do you eat an elephant? Of course, the answer is one bite at a time. So it takes time to become like Christ, a process that will not end until we are with him in eternity. But nonetheless, Paul tells Timothy and Titus to choose men who had already developed these qualities to lead. Therefore, we know it is possible to have some discernible level of spiritual maturity. Therefore, a day-to-day, minute-to-minute, intentional pursuit is necessary for each of us men. So, enough with the introduction. Let's get started. The very first one should be on your, your, uh, your sheet there is to be above reproach. And basically this is synonymous with a good reputation, a good name, which the Old Testament tells us is better than ointment and great riches. Being above reproach does not mean that nobody will ever say anything negative about you because they may dis dislike or despise your stand for biblical values. It does mean that you are not known for evil or dishonesty. Your word can be trusted. You are consistent, not hypocritical. Uh, 
No one will be able to justifiably characterize your conduct as contrary to God's word. This quality seems to be an overarching one. To summarize all the other qualities, it first, we, we see this first pop up uh, in the early church faced with a logistical problem in Acts 6 when the leaders needed help to minister to widows. So they called the disciples to choose seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom. In Acts 16, Paul selects Timothy for service because he was well spoken of by the brothers in Lystra and Iconium. His good reputation had spread to more than one person in more than one community. And that took time as a natural result of growth and maturing as a Christ follower. Similarly, a person who does not exhibit Christ-like character or who remains immature will develop a poor reputation. Mike taught a few weeks ago out of 3 John about Diotrephes, who had a bad rep. He liked to put himself first, he talked wickedly against John, and he refused fellowship with the brothers. On the other hand, Gaius was praised for walking in the truth and his love before the church. Likewise, Demetrius received a good testimony from all. In other words, they were above reproach. Well, I think we're going to find here, as we go through these, is that a man who exhibits the other qualities listed by Paul will have a good reputation. He will be above reproach. So, how do we apply this? How does one know if he or she is above reproach? Ask yourself if you get positive feedback from the people who are closest to you, like spouse, kids, close friends. Uh, many people may say that you or I, are, uh, we are a nice guy, but being a nice guy is not say, the same thing as being above reproach. Uh, that includes not just whether nobody can truthfully claim something about me for which I might be ashamed, but am I known for being the kind of man or woman reflected in the qualities that we will talk about. Finally, as uh, looking at our end, we might ask ourselves, what do I want those closest to me to say at my funeral? Okay, enough on that. The next one is husband of one wife, or sometimes used a one-woman man. This qualification for leadership has given rise to a spectrum of different interpretations all the way from one wife at a time, which would seem to allow for uh, repeated divorce and remarriage, all the way to one wife in a lifetime, which would bar a well-qualified pastor who was widowed from serving in that capacity again, if he remarried. Now, if you're interested, the statement from Lion Lamb on this briefly humbly admits this uncertainty, but then concludes that the phrase, one woman man, describes a man who is now recognized, now recognized for his Christ-like love and service to his current wife. So, previously divorced men could and do lead in service in here at Lion and Lamb, as no leader has perfected any of these qualifications. However, 
The policy goes on to state, one who is otherwise qualified but who has experienced multiple marriage failures may raise serious concerns as to the stability and constancy required for recognition and leadership, even though repentance is present. Additionally, the more devastation present in one's past, the greater the concern that the person is not above reproach with all those previously affected. So, for purposes of men in general, though, it seems a little odd, doesn't it, that Paul would have to hold up such an obvious standard as marriage faithfulness to just one woman. That is, until you consider the pagan culture of the New Testament and its effect on people, including those in the church. 1 Corinthians 5 tells us Paul admonished the Corinthian church for their tolerance of a man who had intimate relationships, apparently, with his stepmother. Now, would anybody be surprised if that practice would be condoned by our culture today? Look at the heart of man in our own culture today when rampant clergy sexual abuse often with the full knowledge and cover of the hierarchy of the domination is in the news. Jesus, on the other hand, called men to a much higher standard. He said, to look on a woman with lust is adultery in the heart. All this to emphasize the importance of God's plan for both married and singles saving themselves for a lifetime of faithfulness or celibacy for service within the church and godly manhood. Now, let's be clear. Men are responsible for their own actions and thoughts before God who sees all and knows our thoughts. So guys, accountability with other godly men is a good thing. Uh, married and single women should understand how men are wired differently, especially visually. We talked about this a couple of months ago and relate to men as they are to relate to you in an understanding way. So my question, ladies, is do women have a corresponding responsibility in this area? Okay, application. Married men should seriously consider this. Am I truly a one-woman man in the sense that I can resist temptations out there, whether by image or in, in actual women? Do women, excuse me, uh, is my whole heart with my one and only? Single men uh, have the same responsibility to that one and only, even if you do not know them at this time. And you should remember that God sees all, even in secret, and knows what's going on in our hearts. <clears throat> Well, there's a whole lot more that could be said about the faithful one-woman man, both married and single, both of whom are to do their wives good all the days of their lives, fleeing youthful lusts and pursuing righteousness. The next quality is being temperate. And temperance is one of the four classic virtues of the ancients, including Aquinas. Now, this word has many connotations or applications, such as moderate in appetite, not self-indulgent. Those are certainly good qualities, but Paul here is using this term to mean a clear perspective and a right physical and spiritual orientation. Stable, steadfast, 
clear thinking. Uh, the temperate man is not spiritually asleep. He is a man who does not lose perspective due to false security. In 1 Thessalonians 5, in addressing the coming day of judgment, which will come like a thief in the night, Paul warns about people out there who say there is peace and security. But this assurance is based upon human genius and mankind being in control. However, Paul continues, that sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So a temperate man understands that life is a vapor. He doesn't have a false security in mankind or those around him. Instead, a child of God, uh, as a child of God, he walks not in darkness, but in the light of God's word. He does not sleep as other do, others do, but he keeps awake and is sober. Another word for temperate. Finally, Paul discloses how to be temperate when others are depending on feeble mankind. He says, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober or temperate, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So we know that a temperate man is a man of faith. He believes and he acts on the promises of God, like Abel and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Moses. He acts on faith even when he doesn't totally understand what lies ahead other than the, re the, the coming of Jesus Christ. And he encourages and, other, and edifies others to look for that day. Hebrews tells us that he lays aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and runs with endurance that the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The temperate man is also a man of hope. Hope overlaps faith. Hope refers to the object of our faith, our attitude, and state of being. Hebrews 11 tells us faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. So a man of hope is steadfast, he has fixed his hope on a living God. He doesn't trust in the uncertainty of riches and things of this world. He holds fast, doesn't waver, and he sets his hope fully on the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Christ. In short, a man of hope is mature, stable, sure of his present. Present circumstances don't create in him a false security, nor will they make him insecure. Finally, a temperate man is a man of love. And Paul tells us that love is the greatest of the triple crown along with faith and hope. So why? Because as 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and finally, love never fails. So, uh, we can conclude that hope, faith, and love are foundational to temperance. And so some questions we could ask about my temperance and yours would be, how strong is my faith in God and the Bible, and is that faith reflected in my actions? Have I fixed my hope on things of this world, most of which, most of which will end up in the landfill, or on that which is eternal? 
And do I measure up as a man of love with the qualities listed in 1 Corinthians 13? Patience, kindness, generosity, humility, manners, unselfishness, self-control, pure motives, and sincerity. Next, we want to look at prudent. This is not to be confused with the modern connotation of being a prude. Prudence is closely aligned with temperance. It's another of the classic virtues. The Greek word for prudent is also translated sober-minded, sensible, sound, judgment, and mind. And we get a contextual commentary on prudence in Romans 12, where it says, For by grace given to me, I say to you, that everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, prudently, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. So Paul tells Christians to have a proper view of themselves in relation to both God and other Christians. Now, in the, in the passage that follows in Romans, he explains how a person has a gift uh, to use as part of the body of Christ. And apparently, Paul saw that churches had a tendency to, of some to uh, have an exalted view of their position within the body of Christ. So instead, he exhorted the members of that body to be devoted to one another in brotherly love and to give preference to one another. Now, prudence is the most universal quality to be spread throughout the body, uh, as reflected in Titus 2, where older and younger men are encouraged to be prudent, and older women are to teach prudence to younger women. A prudent man understands God's grace, that's what, that which he does not deserve. And with, without Christ, he's lost and cannot gain any favor from God on his own merits. And this man humbly acknowledges that all he is and all he possesses, all his abilities and gifts are from God, without whom he is nothing. Paul recognized this about himself. He cautioned, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I, Paul, have more. By that, Paul meant he had all the religious pedigree, the best resume, he had the zealous accomplishments. He had the bragging rights. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Yet, he confessed, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You know, Paul's history makes God's grace even more amazing. He, who ruthlessly pursued and persecuted Christians before he was called and redeemed, how could he, Paul, think more highly of himself than he ought to think? He was prudent because he understood God's grace. A prudent man will willingly give up his pride, go down on his knees in humble adoration, and then rise to a new level of spiritual maturity. At the same time, a prudent man does not avoid pride by leaning back in the other direction too far. Balance, again, is the key. To be mature of sound judgment and humble is not the equivalent of being withdrawn, inhibited, and lacking security. Paul had to exhort his timid son, Timothy. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering of the gospel of the power of God. Uh, 
In discussing the importance of masculine examples, uh, last month I mentioned when talking about fatherhood, how some males brought up in the church taught probably exclusively by females come at some point in their development to view church as a haven for women and weak men. And they will scoff when Jesus said, uh, the meek shall inherit the earth. Because they equate meekness with weakness. But true meekness is not weakness. Rather, it is power under control, like riding a bridled stallion. So our application here would be that the balance of a prudent man means God can use your gifts or mine, but then we must give all glory to him because without him, we would be and we would have nothing. The next trait is respectable. Now, this may not be what you think. We usually equate, equate respectability with reputation. And we, we just talked about being above reproach, which involves reputation. And uh, next month or the following month, we will talk about a good reputation with those outside the church. The word respectable here uh, is the Greek kosmios. And it's translated orderly or well-arranged. Therefore, it speaks of a man living a well-ordered life. It's applied to women in 1 Timothy 2. Women should adorn themselves in respectable, cosmios apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, I was just at a wedding yesterday, and uh, there was braided hair, there were pearls, and costly attire. So how do I get out of this conundrum here? Well, you have to understand what Paul's trying to say here. Some Christians will misinterpret this passage to say that women, and even men, should dress in a drab or unattractive apparel, kind of a fashion martyrdom. The spirit Paul communicates here is that we must not dress in a way to bring attention to ourselves. Rather, the eyes of others should be drawn not primarily to our appearance, but our humble manner and serving to glorify God, again, with good works. So a Christian who presents in a slovenly or even just a, a drab manner actually accomplishes the opposite of what they may be intending. They draw attention to themselves by appearing backward or sometimes disrespectful or just peculiar in the bad sense. In short, they are not well-ordered and not respectable as the word is used here. Uh, this concept of respectability also means that we are to live our lives in such a way that's consistent with God's word. A man is respectable, respectable in his lifestyle, not just his dress, but his speech, the appearance of his home. Uh, the way he conducts business, how he conducts himself in the church are all in right relationship with the Bible. As God is a God of order, so a man of God should be orderly in all areas of his life. In short, he is to be a true gentleman. Now, this won't save him, but this is that to which all men who want to be followers of Christ are called. So, for application here, each of us should look honestly and carefully at our weaknesses and our blind spots. Now, maybe 
it's showing up late for work or appointments that shows a lack of respect for others and especially their time. Or maybe it's a messy house that discourages us from hospitality. Whatever it might be, and we all have these clay feet, pray and put feet to your prayers by focusing on your corrective goal until you can form a new habit. Speaking of hospitality, that's the next quality. Uh, this is the most culturally universal of all that we're going to mention. It's sacred uh, in Oriental culture. It's a religious duty to the Greeks. It's a command to Muslims, and of course, it was a specific instruction to the children of Israel in Leviticus 19. In the New Testament, Paul exhorts in Romans 12, let love be genuine or without hypocrisy. Let or love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The distinctive of hospitality of, by Christians is because it is born not out of duty, but out of our love for all, which should be our motivation to reach out to others. It is a mark of Christian maturity. Mike mentioned that he went to Connie Kern's funeral, as did I, uh, and it was interesting that the very first child that got up, the very first thing she said about her mother was about her hospitality. She said that her hospitality was born out of her love for others, which was born out of her love for Christ. Now, Mere responsibility or duty may produce performance, like you might be a good host or hostess, but it doesn't emanate from the heart. Christians are to love one another not for the reward that we may get in return, but because God first loved us. Look at 1 John 4 for that. Now, this is love not just for other Christians. The word speaks of hospitality towards all. Moses commanded hospitality towards strangers and aliens as if they were, quote, native among you, and you shall love them as yourself. Back to Connie and her husband, Ed. They started the Topeka Friendship Network, matching international students at Washburn University, usually unbelievers, with Christian families. Uh, and here, Larry, Sue, Scott, and Todd McFall have shown hospitality to these alien students for many, many years. Paul picked this up from Moses and Jesus uh, when he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He repeated this to the Galatians and added that this command fulfills the whole law in one word, love. James likewise repeats the command to love your neighbor and helps us understand who our neighbor is uh, when he condemns partiality towards the rich. So it's reasonable to conclude that if we are only hospitable toward people just like us and not towards those of different socioeconomic status, skin color, or even faith, then, as James says, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Hebrews 13 provides, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels 
unaware. Ooh. Now, uh, guys, many of us see hospitality as something that our wives are better at. And I suspect that's generally true. I know it is for me. However, that does not absolve a man from possessing this quality. Christy loves to interact with people, family and others, and I am more of an introvert. Uh, she started a tradition, I think I've mentioned this, of, of passing out cookies or treats to the neighbors with a gospel track or a message around holidays. And it takes her some time to prepare, and my role of delivery is pretty minimal. But the neighbors in our culturally mixed uh, block know we're there and that we care about them. And this gives us a link to them. Still, I as a head have to be open to and encourage hospitality by providing and being willing to share with others. Now, men, learn from my mistake. I think I'm being hospitable when I say, honey, why don't we have so-and-so's family over? And then I get the look because I then realize I'm asking a very busy woman to do some formidable work. Uh, we have a dog of the breed, German Shedder. And so uh, we don't have hair balls, we have hair bergs, great big things. And so it takes, it's constant. We have to clean up all the time. Uh, uh, so just remember, if you make a suggestion of hospitality, back it up by pitching in. Yeah. Paul's exhortation of hospitality is primarily a message to men as to how they should use their households. It's a mark of personal maturity for a man. It's a quality that men are to instill in their families. So it means it's a family, it's a sign of family maturity. Uh, it used to be when we had a rather robust workforce that we found that, practically speaking, inviting people over was a great way to get the house cleaned up. Uh, it's a lot harder now. Uh, finally, hospitality is a mark of a mature church. So we at Lion and Lamb need to be good neighbors without partiality so that we might have the opportunity to show love to others around us and point them to Christ. And we have invited neighbors over and some have actually joined us. Uh, so if you have ideas about how we can reach out to the community around us, particularly to the unchurched, please let us know. We would love to hear your, your thoughts. Uh, one real opportunity coming up soon would be the Fall Fest at the Islas. Uh, so uh, invite people that you know, you know or maybe they're unchurched or, or you know they're lost or whatever, just friends that uh, you would like to come and have fellowship out there. And ladies, please help your gentlemen here to show hospitality, not only in your homes, be open to that and working on that if, not, if that's not your strength, and then also within this body. So, for application, if we want to address a weakness in hospitality, we should ask ourselves, all of us, do we really love others? We should study 1 Corinthians 13. We should not wait for the feeling or the desire to be hospitable. Instead, uh, we should see hospitality out of our love as an attitude to develop 
and an action to be taken. Finally, look for ways to show hospitality to both fellow believers and non-Christians. The last one we're going to look at today is able to teach. Now, this may seem like it's not applicable to the general populace. When we see this quality, we think of, uh, of somebody gifted in teaching, effective communicators, thundering preachers, verbal motivators. And while there are different forms of this word for teaching used throughout Scripture, the exact Greek word used here, didactikos, is only found in 1 Timothy 3, and 2 Timothy 2. And Professor Getz suggests that, the fo that our focus on expertise and skill may not be related to what, what Paul is communicating here. He suggests a more foundational and profound meaning. First, he says, Paul is not talking about having the gift of teaching given to certain people. Uh, a few people have the gift of teaching. Most of us do not. Paul explained that those who do have the gift are to use it to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. And so I'm very thankful for the, for the, for the guys who have that gift. But Christians who do not have that gift of teaching, we are not excused from the teaching class. The intent here is to encourage every Christian who wants to grow and mature to develop and strive to teach on some level. And when we look at how Paul uses the phrase in 2 Timothy, we see a much broader meaning. Now, consider the context here. Uh, listen carefully to the qualities mentioned. He starts off exhorting to flee youthful lusts, go after righteousness, faith, love, peace, a pure heart, and avoid controversies. Then he says that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, and correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now, the goal here is to bring repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, so that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do the devil's will. Certainly, these are qualities of a good teacher. But can we say that these are not qualities for all of us to develop in order to disciple others? Here Paul tells Tim to develop significant qualities of life and plopped right in the middle of that list, we find able to teach as a quality of a mature and self-controlled believer. So, it appears that to be able to teach, one must develop the qualities necessary to communicate effectively in a non-threatening way that will not turn others away, which means we're not pugnacious, we're not argumentative. Instead, that person, that man who's seeking that, must be able to... Uh, be sensitive to the confused and patient with the obstinate. He does not fight back when attacked. Instead, he returns good for evil. In short, he's not defensive. He is secure. In Titus 1, Paul lays out that an elder is self-controlled. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. But 
when addressing workers approved by God in 2 Timothy 2, Paul recounts these same qualities. The point here is that yes, an elder must have these qualities of self-control and right attitude, a conviction to hold fast to God's word, but so should every man who wants to, we to work for God's approval. So, a man able to teach has self-control and conviction, but we're not born with the ability to teach. Now, certainly, being able to teach includes being teachable, one who's humble and desiring to know the will of God. So to teach, one must first learn. A maturing man must, must have a basic understanding of the Bible. I've told my kids in the high school class, uh, Apologetics of Christian Lead, you can only give what you possess. So you must learn and possess what you seek to teach to others. In the context of church and discipleship, that means regular and significant time studying the most important book in our existence. Around here, you'll just occasionally hear the phrase, read your Bible. And I would add, study it. You know, look at some commentaries. Not all commentaries are equal, but get some advice from somebody here as to how to study and to be able to teach. Speaking to his spiritual son earlier in 2 Timothy, Paul instructs, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, you, Timothy, are to entrust to faithful men who will then be able to teach others, and those others being men who want to be good soldiers for Christ. He exhorts Timothy to study to show himself to, uh, to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, here at Lion Lamb, we are blessed with many men who are able to teach up front here, most without formal training at seminary or Bible college. Now, you may know, guys, that I'm never going to be up there, okay? Uh, and you may even say, I could never even lead a small group. Some of you can, uh, even if you're not up here. But absent a disability, all faithful men can develop the ability to teach their own families. Why is that important? Because it's commanded of us. It's a responsibility placed on husbands and fathers in Deuteronomy 6, Ephesians 5, and Ephesians 6. Can't get out of that one, guys. One of the greatest inhibitors of teaching is a thing called fear. I still have memories of my first grade reading class, and the teacher would give the, the rest of the class uh, busy work, and she'd form a circle of five or six of us. And I hated it because I stuttered. And it just, you know, it made me lack self-acceptance for years until really the junior high level uh, I was still in it at that point, but somebody came along and said, Kent, why don't you try this public speaking thing? So I tried it, you know, and I, I actually made, I gave a speech one time, and I didn't really pursue it very much in high school. I was never in debate or anything like that. 
but I had more experience in the Marine Corps where I was required to teach, and then as an advocate in front of judges, I had to speak. Uh, and all along the way, I started having kids, and, and we homeschooled, and, and for some, you know, they didn't give us a homeschool kit. We actually had to, to teach ourselves. Uh, so it was important that I understand my role and that I not be afraid to teach. So if you study and you possess some biblical knowledge, what do you want to do next? Again, you know, to our young people in the high school class, uh, we try to engage them uh, in conversation with each other and answering questions and talking among themselves, which is sometimes seen as a deficiency of homeschoolers. We tell them that the only way to overcome the fear of talking in front of people is to talk in front of people. That's it. Okay? So, for application here, uh, for the humble but yet quiet guy who perhaps doesn't do any teaching, start with your own family by leading a simple Bible study. I would start in the Proverbs. You don't have to cover much every day because you cannot go through the Proverbs with finding something on every single page that you can apply to your life. Another good place to, to go would be the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, lots of good stuff there. Plenty to talk about and apply. You can adjust the depth of the study based upon the depend, depending on the maturity of your kids. Uh, you know, it was not easy when we didn't have the distractions of technology that you guys have today. So we, we were probably not as creative as we should have been, but you guys are definitely have to be creative. Maybe you even are able to employ some of that technology and use variety to your advantage. Speaking of technology, uh, it's not that screens are inherently evil. But what kids are taking in through the eye gate and the ear gate may be, okay? None of us would hire a stranger to come in and, and teach our kids without knowing anything about them. So why would we write a blank check to any device that brings in all kinds of teachers? Some may be good, but some not so. Uh, screens are basically a stable of of the, uh, of the diet of young people today. So to get an idea of the importance of leading in study of God's word, dads, ask yourself this question. How much time do my kids spend in front of a screen with teachers I know nothing about compared to the time they spend in God's word? What are they taking in and how important of, for their well-being in life is it for them to learn the truths of their creator, sustainer, and savior from us, their dads. Okay, that's it. To wrap up, that's it, I'm sorry. <laughs> Is that enough? <laughs> to wrap up today, uh, you know, we should all be growing, not, as, not just in our teaching ability, but to develop all these qualities. So please stand and let's read together what Paul exhorts us all to do in Colossians 3. Together. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. 
and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving